When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hello, is this on? I've been really enjoying your podcast series called Speech from the Throne. Liam, I don't know what happened to you as a child, but the amount of times you bring up red meat is a little bit concerning. What I think you should do is I think you should come to one of my five-star hotels and try out some of our red meat steaks. They're tremendous. They're wonderful. You're going to love it. You like a rare? You like a medium? We have it in all different types. Okay? Anyways, i got a lot of things to do right now. Hi, I'm Jacob Kenny. And I'm Liam McPherson. It's the newest edition of your first year Devil's Advocate poli-sci student's favorite podcast. It's Speech from the Throne, episode 22. We're here to bring you the latest and the greatest from the Halls of Power. But not with another death threat the police decide isn't direct enough to investigate. We're just here to argue. And hey, Liam, what are we arguing about today? Well, Jacob, uh, a recurrent theme on this podcast is the rise of right-wing populism. And what comes with that rise of populism is a rise of online vitriol. Since social media was invented, it's made it easier for you to tell the guy or gal or whoever that you don't like behind a screen with no consequences whatsoever. People online can be nasty. We particularly see that on places like Twitter. But now it's getting to the point where Journalists are experiencing something of a reckoning with with one segment of the public, mostly. And I I think trust in media went down quite a bit after the Trump years began, and that's really hurt them. And I think we could tie politicians to that. When Trump started talking about draining the swamp and the blowback from that sort of drain the swamp mentality, the way he framed it, it had a racist tinge, it had a misogynist tinge. So the blowback is mostly targeted at BIPOC politicians and journalists and women politicians and journalists. There are a number of these cases that we've seen crop up in recent years. You know, there is a Labour backbencher member of Parliament in Britain named Joe Cox that was killed in broad daylight by some loony who supported a right-wing populist movement called Britain First. He yelled Britain First as he killed her. And on a slightly less severe scale, but still horrific, we have Catherine McKenna, uh, the former uh, a former cabinet minister under Trudeau, who through much of her tenure, and to this day, I imagine, receives death threats. She's harassed in public with her family. Uh, one time she was out with her family and some guy slowed down and told her to go fuck herself because she was climate Barbie or something like that. Um, you know, and that isn't the first time that's happened. It's happened quite frequently. Is it okay if I inter- if I interrupt, Liam, because I actually have a personal story when I was campaigning with Catherine McKenna. She, Please she chime in, her yes. two, She and her two daughters were out uh, door knocking and I was with her. This was not during a campaign. It was in between the campaigns after, after the Liberal victory in 2015. Uh, and I remember that... Kathleen Wynne was still the premier of Ontario. And there's a lot of like confusion in people's minds as to you know where the Liberal Party of Ontario ends and the Liberal Party of Canada begins. And so we were I remember door knocking and Catherine McKenna and her two kids were literally just a, a couple doors away. I said to the, the guy, hey, I'm uh, I'm door knocking with, uh, with 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 Catherine McKenna and we're wondering if we can if we can get your support for the Liberal Party. And he said, you know, I'm never going to support that b word or kathleen win and you know those those c words that are working for her and just like just this huge like tirade 
of the, the worst misogynistic language you could possibly imagine. Again, like, all within earshot of Catherine McKenna and her little girls. And just didn't, could not care less. Says it to our faces. And then slams the door. <laughs> and it's like... It's visceral. And the worst thing it's is, not, not, only, not, not only is it not as easy screaming at us, he's screaming at the wrong people. He was angry at Catherine Wynne. <laughs> he wasn't even... It wasn't even directed at the, at the correct party. And, yeah, and that was a that was quite. Here's the where time. I say that politicians bear responsibility for raising the te- raising the temperature when it comes to this stuff. You know, like the reason that there's no distinction in this man's mind between Kathleen Wynne and Catherine McKenna is because the Tories spent years telling people that it was one and the same. And I mean, the liberals have also done the same thing, trying to scare people into uh, certain provincial PCs being like uh, the federal. Yeah. Conservatives, which is tying Doug Ford with uh, and more Andrew Shear is more Doug to Ford. quite to yeah. quite devastating effect, uh, and so it's been done. You know, all parties have, have have done it, but this is the consequence when that kind of meets a tide of of right wing populism that was started by Brexit, that was started by Trump, that was started by all of that sort of mid twenty tens kind of upheaval, and. You know, now we're seeing, now we're really seeing the consequences. So we talked about Catherine McKenna. We talked about Joe Cox. Um, you know, at the provincial level, you touched on Kathleen Wynne as well just now. She faced some horrific, misogynistic, homophobic blowback due to her mistakes in office. We should, we should have been critiquing, critiquing Kathleen Wynne about her mistakes in office. We shouldn't be critiquing her about her, her sexuality, about her gender, about anything of that regard but she faced a ton of that Allison Redford Rachel Notley they've faced horrible horrible threats to the point where Brian Jean the nut, the nut bar in chief these days in Alberta had to beg people to stop sending Rachel Notley death threats so where does this end I don't understand where this ends most recently today why we're talking about this this past week global news journalist Rachel Gilmore journalist Erica Ifill and uh, some others on Twitter were revealed to their followers that they have been the target of a coordinated campaign of harassment from at least one individual. It's the same individual. He frequently claims to convene his friends where they d- discuss various sexual assaults they'd like to carry out on these women. They use racial slurs. They use uh, misogynistic slurs. This has been repeated for months. This isn't just weeks. This is months of the same individual who switches his proton mail every time one gets shut down because they do try. They started trying to report his email. That got shut down, and he would make another one. Then he'd make another one. Then he'd make another one. Finally, Rachel Gilmore had enough. She decided to call uh, Ottawa police to report the death threat. She sat on hold for hours, had to call back the next day, called back the next day, reported the death threat, tried to explain that it was a coordinated campaign against her and and other women and uh, journalists of color, and was promptly asked by the the dispatcher, ma'am, can I talk, please? When she was trying to explain her detail, uh, her detailed story. She also explained that she was directly named in several of these emails, often with a misogynistic uh, epithet beside her name, and the dispatcher responded, so you weren't directly mentioned? 
And she's like, uh, no, I, I was, I just said that. <laughs> like, like you, there's a whole video online, folks. You can go on Rachel Gilmore's Twitter and watch this. There's a whole video of her call. And like, listen, I'm not saying that this particular individual at the Ottawa police is responsible for the systemic failures of policing, but nothing showcases the sy- systemic failures of policing and how they victimize victims than this video. It's, it's so blatant how they're, how they make the, the victim feel as if it's, their burden to report and well we'll do something if we can get to it but I doubt we can do anything about it and so finally an officer followed up with Rachel Gilmore about her reports uh, report and uh, he said apparently according to, to Gilmore he sounded frustrated but he basically said there was nothing they could do so nothing gets done and now her and her BIPOC, uh, BIPOC and uh, female colleagues who also reported this allegation to the Toronto police and they did nothing have to live with months more of harassment from these knuckle draggers. So my question to you, Jacob, is where do we get off? Like journalists have have obviously, at least in the 20th century, have had a history of falling into this corporate model of journalism that, that, that encourages them to both sides everything when they're not really supposed to do that. And it's not morally, it doesn't, journalism is a moral calling in my opinion. And when there's a moral reason to not both sides something, it's important that you stand on that moral soapbox and for a while journalists didn't they tried to both sides everything i think that hurt them i think it should have hurt them but not only have we seen since the trump years journalists trying to speak with a more free voice remember there are journalists all across the political spectrum we have seen the rise of hate through a misogynistic and racist lens being targeted at people who are just trying to do their jobs and who are increasingly, aside from some exceptions at major outlets, trying to speak with their own voice. So where do we get off, Jacob? What do you think of all this? Well, it's, I don't know where we're going to end this problem because I think it's just getting worse. And to be perfectly honest, if we're trying to rely on the police to defend journalists we've already lost the only one that's going to defend a leftist is another leftist the the police are never going to to step in to protect progressives because progressives are the ones that are arguing against the powers of the state the progressives are the ones that are arguing against the powers of our of our capitalist structures and you know it, it makes no sense for the police who his only job basically is to, to to maintain our structures of discrimination and prejudice that they're ever going to protect the people that are that are dismantling it and so for a long time before basically before world war one or, or world war two during the invention of the newspaper phase it was very common for there to be a subscription model where you know, they had a left-wing newspaper that was supported by left-wing subscribers there'd be a right-wing newspaper supported by right-wing subscribers and the two sides hated each other but no one could really afford to to buy too many newspapers that belonged to the other side because you know they were expensive and so we never had this cross-contamination where people were aware of the opinionists or the columnists of the other side and then would go out and and, and try to attack them with the mass media model of you know the, the the current age where journalists are still trying to play to both sides particularly with global now you can say rachel gilmore is a little more on the left but but global is definitely not like a left-wing organization it, it's a it's a capitalist organization it wants to make money and to make money in an advertising model you gotta advertise to the widest population possible and so that necessarily means it's going to be sending her stories to people that otherwise would not be inclined to read it. Um, and that's just kind of a recipe for violence. And so if you want a way to avoid this, I think journalists need to start recognizing 
the side that they're that they're playing to. That the the old idea of, or I shouldn't say old, because it's really just an aberration. It's something that happened after World War II. The idea that you could remove politics from the news, that you could only you, you could only tell stories in an un quote unquote unbiased way that could be marketed to every segment of the population was always a bit of a fantasy. It was always based on you know, huge swaths of the population being suppressed in what they, they could or, or, or could not say. There was an artificial consensus. And now that that artificial consensus has, has broken down, that there is much more of a debate, it, definitely a debate in, in areas like, you know, we're talking about uh, women's rights or the rights of minorities, debates that we probably should not be having, quite frankly, that should we would hope had been settled 50 years ago that seemed to be coming up again. Now that you know, everything is becoming contentious once again, there's no mass market message. And more importantly, I don't think it's necessary anymore. We're able to advertise to increasingly particular segments of the population it's not even becoming super profitable to, to have a mass market audience anymore. And you're, as you were saying in the pre-discussion, like many journalists are, are leaving the, the mass market advertiser-driven model and moving towards subscription models. I think it, it has to be done that way. The only people that are going to protect you as a journalist are the people in, on your camp. They're your, your subscribers. The old idea of you know, I'm going to defend the capitalist system and the capitalist system is going to defend me back, i.e. the police, is silly. They're not going to defend you. The police are not there to help you. The police are there to help your company, but they're certainly not there to, to help you, the journalist. And I think people are starting to realize that. Now, is this necessarily an, an ultimate solution? I'm just basically advocating for more polarization, sadly. But I think as a way to protect yourself, it's the only way that the journalists are, are going to be able to survive in this method. You need to know who your people are. I do think that the prevalence of, of misogyny and these, these, these racist attacks as well against journalists is sort of proof that they're not fostering correctly a left-wing protection. That misogynists and racists feel so free to attack because they're not getting challenged, they're not getting contested. And that's what we need. We need to have people that are fighting back. And that's, I really appreciate Rachel Gilmore for, for bringing that up to the subscribers, for showing, you know, this is the threat. And now I think, you know, people like you and I, Liam, and, and, and other progressives, we, we need to do our due diligence and respond to the threat by when we see someone going after journalists, when we see people attacking someone on Twitter, we have to do our part and say that's not acceptable. We can't just sit back and call the police and hope that they deal with it. We have to be the ones that are out there protecting journalists. Now, yeah, that maybe that is a recipe for more polarization. It's true. But at, at the end of the day, you cannot allow the enemy to maintain the whole field of battle. You have to contest them. You have to show that we will not accept or tolerate this level of discussion without some sort of conflict. You have to be able to show that we're not going to be we're not going to be pushed over. We're not going to let you just destroy the only people that are trying to report the truth. If one side is already fighting, it's not an option to just lay down our arms and and pretend the war isn't here. The war is here. And now we have to start fighting it. I think you uh you hit on a lot of good stuff there and I mean basically where this starts is, you know, in, in journalism school, they beat into my head and all of our heads. Your duty as a journalist is to the truth. And I'm not sure what other 
colleagues of mine took that as because a lot of journalists historically, particularly in, in decades like pre this one, have tried to both sides everything and that's been the truth. Sometimes, and this is the way that I took the lesson in journalism school, the truth demands you morally to take a side. Some issues, like journalism, are inherently tied to politics. And when something is tied to politics, you're not going to get a consistent side. You're not going to get a consistent answer. And you might happen to write a piece with the Liberals and the Tories where maybe the Liberals are morally in the wrong. And then you might write another piece where the Tories are morally in the wrong. But historically, these have been both sides. Or maybe one issue has been minimized to make it seem like it's weighted similarly to the other issue. We can't be doing that anymore. If the truth is that indigenous people in Canada have been deprived of clean water for decades on end, centuries perhaps, then that's the truth. If the truth is that we have families living on welfare or in, in trailers or tents in Nova Scotia on the South Shore, that's the, that's the truth. You can't sugarcoat that. And I think you have a moral duty to the truth that you tell it. You don't sugarcoat it. You don't balance it. You tell the truth. And I think more and more journalists are starting to do that unabashedly, like you're saying, as a response to this rising tide of hate. And I, I know what you mean, Jacob. It is unfortunate that you sort of have to, to, to ratchet up the, the culture war dial. But I'm similar to you. Like, of course, if there was a world where we couldn't have a culture war, that would be wonderful. But getting back to the whole moral duty, we have a moral duty to call these things out. So if one side is screaming and shouting over the other one, we need to start defending them. And I find it simultaneously empowering and disturbing, to be honest with you. I find it empowering that some of this stuff is being returned to our hands as the people, but then I find it disturbing that there that's because our system has failed and there's no adequate regulation method to ensure stuff like this doesn't happen. That's what I find disturbing, especially in a country like Canada, but I find it empowering that more and more people are waking up to the way that some of these people, journalists and politicians, are being treated. How are we going to recruit politicians in this country? Who's going to feel safe in their job now? We've had MPs' offices receive poison in envelopes like multiple times across the past 20 years since 9-11 that's happened. We've had politicians get death threats. We've had politicians get insulted based on their race, their sex, whatever. If you don't like a politician, vote them out. Go to a protest. Whatever you want. Exercise your right to protest. I don't care. Don't harass their families. Harass them. Harass their staff. Don't do that. Why are you doing that? What do you think that's going to accomplish? It's not going to accomplish what you think. In fact, all it's going to do is wake up more people, including us, to the problem. So what's the solution here? How can we deal with this if police aren't going to step in? Like, what do you, what do you think, Jacob? I mean, is, is yelling on Twitter enough? I, I think that journalists need to decide what the purpose of the information that they're giving to the public is. If you're looking under the old advertising model, the purpose of, of giving an article, the purpose of making a news clip is just to get eyeballs on the screen. It's just to it's just to, to drag you in as long as possible so you can see as many ads. And so like you can see if if, if let's let's go back to the Rachel Gilmore example. You can see 
a version of her story where she would want to do that, where she would she would say like, oh, you know, these are these people that are attacking me, and I don't like that very much. But also, you know, they they also have their own opinion, and they and they're growing up in their own culture, and so you know, here's my side of the story, here's their side of the story, and at the end of the day, that basically just leaves you with, oh, okay, well, I guess both sides are equally valid, so I'll just I'm just going to keep reading to you know to 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 uncover more of the story, but I. I don't, as a reader, have any other action left to me besides just continuing to read. And if your goal is to you know, market eyeballs, then that's the goal. The problem is, with that type of journalism, that the public isn't using that information to improve society. They're just using that information to improve your bottom line. If, however, you're a journalist who wants to give information to the public so that they can use that information to make a genuine improvement to society, and maybe you're a conservative a journalist and your your idea of improving society is very radically different than you know my left-wing idea of improving society, but in, in general, you want to give someone a particular narrative or particular story so that they can use these facts as a way of helping a political goal, then you can actually go somewhere. And that's what I think that's what Rachel Gilmore did. She didn't just paint <laughs> both sides here and 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 say, oh, this is this is my experience, but here's the other person's experience. It was no, no, I am being attacked and now I need to be defended. Now and now and now you know, I think you saw that and you're like, okay, I need to make a whole episode about this. When you and I were debating beforehand whether or not we should even do an episode this week, like you felt a call to action. And that's what we need. We need citizens to be you know looking at uh, uh, to be looking at a story and getting a genuine call to action the problem is is that you're never going to get there with the traditional set of journalistic standards because a call to action is always based off of a subjective morality it's like you can always describe the facts of the situation in a relatively unbiased perspective like there's obviously you have to use some sort some sort of notion of, like, uh, this is based off of the notion of like Western empiricism, and so you're fundamentally, even even ontologically, you're never really going to be able to argue. You're never going to be able to get an unbiased determination of fact. But anyways, let's just say you can say what the fact universe is relatively politically uh, neutrally, but the the way that you actualize that information, the way that you take that information and and make a difference in the world, that's always always going to be politically subjective. And that's the part that I think a lot of people miss. Like they're they're reading they're reading everything. Of, oh, climate change is ruining the world, but they don't know what the hell to do about it. And that's the part that journalists are not filling people in on. They're not they're they're giving you facts, but you need to give them a direction. You need to show them what to do. So you're saying like, oh, politicians are in danger and stuff. Well, that's because there aren't any people around them protecting them. The funny thing is, is that even though we're in a, this this hyper partisan, hyper polarized environment. There's actually a relatively small number of people that are on Twitter making the arguments. There's a relatively small number of people that are in these marches, in these rallies. I think the real story of this political moment is that there's a whole bunch of people that are tuned out entirely. There's far fewer people are joining political parties, for example. Far fewer people are subscribed to newspapers. Far fewer people are actually part or far fewer people are voting in general. Fewer people are participating in the system, and it's because they have no fucking idea what to do. They see all these problems, but they're given no solutions. If journalists said, here's the problem, here's what you need to do about it, here's the guy you need to vote to support, 
then you would have people coming out of their houses and actually supporting these politicians, you know, building a human wall around them so that no one is going to shoot them. That's the only way you protect people. You need people protect other people. It's not, you can never rely on the police. You can never rely on, on anything else. It's people protecting themselves. And in, the, in order for that to happen, they need a coherent narrative. They need a structure. They need to have a mission. And you're not going to get that with the current journalistic model. You need to be able to show, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Here's the direction that we go in. And until we get there, it is going to be more dangerous for the journalists and the politicians themselves. But if they can craft a side and know where they're on, know the general direction, they can be safe. You're always safe in numbers. You're always safer in a particular side. And that's the difficulty. We haven't figured out what side we're on yet in the, in the journalist world. The right wing knows what side they're on. They know big time what side they're on. And it's not a good side. We need to have the same sort of discussion in the, in the left. And it's difficult for us to do on the left because during the Cold War, the Americans did a good job of basically killing all the Bolsheviks and then jailing all the anarchists. And so there's like the, the organizations and where to go to are, are very fragmented and you know liberals are, are, are still sticking their toes and whether they want to maintain the policies of capitalism or socialism. And so there's a, it's a much more fragmented picture on the left than it is on the right in the Western world. And that's, I think that's fundamentally our problem is we're not protecting ourselves, basically, because we all have these little ideological disagreements. And so we we're just watching as one one progressive journalist gets attacked and we're like, well, they're not progressive enough for me, so I'm not going to stand up for them. It's not acceptable. We got to stand up for everyone all the time. That's the only way we, we keep ourselves safe. Yeah, and I mean, you, you speak of this antiquated model, I speak of this antiquated model. We've seen journalists start to move away from this. Uh, so we've got Paul Wells, he started his own Substack. If you don't know what Substack is, it's a, a service that allows writers and journalists and authors to independently share their work through a, a subscription-based model. So we've got Paul Wells on Substack now. We've got Christopher Curtis, formerly of the Montreal Gazette. He's on Substack. Former and guest of the show. Former guest of the pod, that's right. Um, we've got Jen Gerson on Substack, along with uh, uh, Matt Gurney, I believe. So Jen, and, Jen and Matt contribute to sort of collaboration called The Line. That's their Substack. So, and they're not necessarily lefties either. They're, I would say, center-right. So it's across the spectrum we're seeing this move to independent platforms. Now, there are still many legacy journalists that I, I keep tabs on and many wonderful legacy journalists who are able to cover issues well but i think we'll be seeing less and less of of, of legacy media you know canada land uh, that's jesse brown's organization has blown up in the past you know i would say even five years like since they did their thunder bay series there about five years ago like that really and then they did white saviors and, and they're fantastic i honestly can't uh, I, I, white saviors was a, was amazing if you thought the we charity stuff was was bad just because of their connection with the liberal party like it's it's so so much worse. So you know these um, yeah, are the I never things that learned that without Canada exactly. Land. These are the things that are now coming to light now that we have bold independent journalism that isn't beholden to a corporate agenda. And I know that you'll hear a lot of right wing populists say that the reason they don't like mainstream media is because it has a corporate agenda. And though their views on what constitutes a corporate agenda and what constitutes fake news are deeply deeply flawed because of a complete lack of media literacy, they are correct that cor corporations have muddied the waters when it comes to journalism uh, in a lot of cases. Yep. So it, it's helpful to regain public trust if more journalists move to this kind of model, or if they don't, even if they don't want to move, if they start writing this way. Um, 
However, they still need people to stand up to the wave of hate. That's not going to subside. Hell, it's being fun fundraised on. Have you have you ever seen like a Conservative Party of Canada email during a, a term of Parliament, a session of Parliament? It's angry. Have you seen a Pierre Polyev fundraising email about defunding the CBC? It's angry. There's politicians that stoke this for fundraising, which in turn emboldens them, and then the police do nothing, which in turn emboldens them further. Uh, and that is the problem. We're drifting towards something that's not sustainable. There's already been a woman killed in the UK. I do think it's just a matter of time until someone gets hurt or killed. And I know that Michael Wernick said this during the SNC-Lavalin trial as part of his weird coy defense of what he didn't do during the SNC-Lavalin uh, incident. I don't know why I said trial. SNC-Lavalin hearings. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't, you know, he was kind of using it like, oh, people are going to get killed as to why, like... People shouldn't be upset about SNC Lavalin, so that was kind of that didn't land. But he is right that somebody's going to get killed. <laughs> like it's going to happen. Yep. It's only a matter of time till some loony shows up to the PM's door. Somebody tried last summer. He showed up with a truck loaded full of weapons and was stopped by the Mounties. Thank God. But like it's someone's going to get killed or hurt. And politicians who fundraise on this stuff have blood on their hands. They will have blood on their hands, and. If we care to never see this kind of politics return again, we should do everything in our power to make sure that politicians who fundraise off of this bullshit are never allowed to get a job in this country again. So the traditional model of a political party, as it was crafted in the late 19th century, early 20th century, had three elements. There is a, a bureaucratic part that offered services to the population, a political part that's meant to win elections, and a terrorist organization that's meant to overthrow the government. Now, in the West, we don't have many parties that have that have links to those terrorist organizations, although there actually are a few socialist parties still in Europe that used to run terrorist organizations. And in the 20s and 30s, terrorist organizations that were linked with either like the Bolsheviks, that were linked with or fascists or nationalists, killed thousands and thousands and thousands of, of public figures. I mean, like you you named one political assassination, but in many ways, we're actually very lucky to be living in, in an incredibly peaceful time politically because in, in more tumultuous periods, you know, like uh, in, in Japan, when there was, b before uh, the Pacific War started, before Japan invaded China, there was a huge fight basically over whether or not they were going to move towards ultranationalism or whether they should just, you know, stay in the in the Japanese home islands and become more of a regular Western democracy. And, you know, a prime, the prime ministers were getting assassinated like every week. They were just, there was constant turmoil of people were getting, like uh, members of their parliament constantly getting shot. And before the Russian Revolution, for example, I think the year before the Russian Revolution, there was something like 5,000 uh, uh, local governors were killed. So there's and local officials and like there was a it was an absolute bloodbath and so if we let this thing get out of control it can get out of control super fast and right now we're seeing I think on the right wing we are seeing that they are developing these terrorist organizations again that are working in concert or I shouldn't we can't prove they're working in concert with existing political parties but we can guess from the history of these political movements that there probably are some links so we're seeing like there's right now a there's a cult basically that just bought a church that I used to live very close beside uh, in the Byward Market in Ottawa there's this old derelict church it's less than a kilometer away from Parliament it got bought out by a Freedom Convoy linked 
Christian cultist organization called the United People of Canada. It has these giant, terrifying Nazi red banners in front of their church with these like really weird Orwellian logos and it's 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 so bizarre because it it, it seems transparently like obvious what they're what they're selling. First they brought people in to like talk about the causes of the Freedom Convoy and, to, and they said, "Oh, we're we're helping the community." And now they just said that we're they're going to build a private security detail without a license. They're just building a private security force to quote unquote protect the church. And again, a con so we have a convoy linked organization. We don't know where this money came from, but they bought a church less than a kilometer away from parliament and now they're building a quote-unquote security organization. Like, come on, guys. Do we not see what's happening here? Like, they're, they're building a militia. Did you hear about the police? The police proactively checked in and was like, okay, if you're going to set up a private security force, make sure you do X, Y, Z, and then left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as far as we know, with a major underline, they're not breaking any laws at the moment, but it's highly suspicious, yeah. <laughs> particularly given the fact that they're affiliated with the freedom convoy and they want to have a national discussion but they can't do that without having some sort of brutish security force it's just kind of it's very brazen what the positioning of this organization no, it's very is. clear that they're planning for a coup in canada and they're trying to fund a militia that will eventually be used to take over the government i don't know if they're ever going to succeed in that but it's painfully obvious what the goals of the of, of that church is painfully obvious and it's ridiculous to me that we cannot say that in public and we cannot shut these people down i don't know how we can possibly allow and i think this just goes back to the the previous podcast we're talking about a lack of religious education i think anyone that has any sort of knowledge of actual religious intentions can look at their site and say these guys have these guys have nothing to do with it with any sort of religious agenda it's very clearly <laughs> a freedom convoy political movement like that's a, that that kills me because again like i used to live three blocks from this place the world is 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 gotten so crazy so fast and you know the americans have had these militia these these free roaming militia for a long time and they've also killed people for a long time as this, this led to a podcast after roe v wade was overturned that said since after roe v wade was passed in in the early 1970s there have been 12 doctors, abortion doctors, who've been assassinated by extremist Christian terrorists in the United States. And also in the 1990s, on CNN, CNN allowed, this is just goes back to the, to the both sides journalism, CNN allowed an extremist Christian advocate to go onto their national broadcast and debate whether or not it was morally acceptable to shoot abortion doctors. He was, he was allowed to do that. He was allowed to play to say that God sanctified the killing of, of abortion doctors. And big surprise, people listened to him do it and killed abortion doctors. This is not something we can both sides. There's one side that wants to very violently overthrow our society and turn it into some sort of, you know, very extreme Christian fascism, as you described it before. And there's another side that doesn't want to do that. So I don't think that's a both sides argument. I think that's a there's clearly a, there's clearly an enemy of sanity that needs to be stopped, and there's one side that's willing to do the stopping. You, you can't just sit on the fence in this case. You cannot do it.
And hopefully, listeners, that helps you get off the fence if you were on it before. Obviously, very a difficult conversation to have, but an important one and, and difficult shouldn't be stopping us from having these these conversations. I'm glad that uh, I had the chance to do it with Jacob. I'm glad that I, I thought of it because we were initially thinking of taking this week off just for a little vacation break. But we like to, to keep the consistency of the program up if we can. And these right-wing so adjectives, we... they do not take a vacation. They don't. <laughs> they nice. don't take vacation That's, i mean he's right it's true and now look if if you want to hear more of this if you have ideas for future episodes if you have thoughts you can share it with us at speech from the throne at gmail.com that's speech from the throne at gmail.com also spare a thought for kiska the whale she's the last orca whale in captivity in canada she's 45 she's trapped at marine land in a 40 by 20 meter tank and they're trying to get her out to a sanctuary out in Nova Scotia. So spare a thought for her today. Um, we need to get her back to where she belongs. And with that, I hope you have a great rest of your week. Bye, bye, bye.